The following is Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. No promotional fees are paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. Welcome to Voices of Experience here right on Kixie AM 880 and KKNW 1150 AM simulcast together. My name is Paul Casey, your host. We have a lineup today that I think is going to be very informational mm-hmm. as well as fun. Those yep. two combinations. And Eric, you lead off. You're going to lead off with an interview today, and it's uh, your spotlight on the Department of Revenue not collecting money, but distributing money. Yeah, so listen up. There could be some money out there waiting for you, even uh, in bank boxes and things like that. They have real property, and then there's money that hasn't been paid back to you by some agency or even some businesses. So we're going to teach you how to go to a website, super easy, put your information in, and who knows. I went on there. I didn't have anything, unfortunately. But I had some siblings that had you know, $50, $100 worth of stuff that all they do is fill out the form, get the money. And uh, I understand there's like $1.8 billion it's that they're holding on to. And I'm not, well, I don't think it's, right it's coming it's up in a moment. I, I really, it was quite fascinating. I did listen to it and I really learned a lot from that. Cool. I'm going to uh, be visiting with a Carlton Ward later in the show towards the um, 45 minute mark. And uh, he's the author of Path of the Panther. There's an explosion of growth in Florida. I think we all know that. A 1,000 people a day are moving into Florida. As a matter of fact, I read this week, Florida just passed New York State in population. Wow. So there you have it there. So that would probably be number two, California. California. Now it's Florida. And uh, he talks about saving wildlife corridors, and particularly in the Everglades. Hmm. He's incredible individual. So you're going to just have to wait a little while to hear from him. We're also going to be talking to a Frank Sidarius. He's an attorney in Seattle. Great guy. I know him pretty well. And we're going to talk about estate planning today. If you have an estate plan, if you don't, do you need one? What does it take to get one? How expensive is it? All those sorts of things. Getting some more information out there as we can. Actor Tom Hanks, who I'm a big fan of. Two of my favorite movies that I've ever seen in my life are with... uh, Tom Hanks, uh, Forrest Gump, and Saving Private Ryan. That's a sidebar. But he just talked to the graduating class of Harvard. Wonderful speech for 20 minutes or so. I highly advise you to watch that because he just shows how smart he is and how he can connect with the audience. But he talked about some real interesting things about truth, Hmm. and I thought it would be interesting to share that with the audience today. So he's coming up later in the uh, half hour or hour. Actually, he will be in this half hour. We have him waiting out in the lobby, right? Yes. Okay, yes. good. You flew I'll in for this coffee. today. He said, you know, he really wanted to get his big break <laughs> on Voices of Experience. So I said, I'll see what I can do. He said Tom. he did a few movies. Nothing we may get big. to him. I don't know. But he's anxious. Hey, Tom. I yeah, there see him right there. Okay. Um, Voices of History today. Okay, Eric, you have to also, Eric Ryder, listen to this one, see if you can get it. A private auto speed testing facility was opened up 117 years ago today. It turned into something much larger. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I've got it. Eric, you seem like you are nodding that you have it too. Or I, I think I might, but uh, I'll, I'll wait and hear the answer <laughs> so okay. don't look stupid. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Given the wrong answer now. I'll take that category for 200 You got it. Eric's going to pay you after the show. (laughs) Timeless classic for today, artist and singer who recently passed away. She sang the introduction for one of the James Bond movies that was considered a rival to Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger song. Remember that from Mm, 64, just that powerful voice. A lot of people were saying, He loves gold. About the, yes, exactly. And, That's um, one of the lyrics. Yeah, that's right. To the song. Yeah. yeah. And they're saying that a lot of people are debating in the world of James Bond that one of these two were the best. 
Okay. So that's what I'm playing today. Now, unfortunately, you won't hear this on the KKNW side of things, the Timeless Classic, because of licensing issues. So You're, you're going to hear right? some of it. You'll get a taste. You'll get a taste of it, so yeah. they will hear some of it. Okay, yep. good to know. And um, just again, Voices of Experience, what do we do? We talk with people with experience. That's really what we attempt to do every week here in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, entertainment, and we talk about entrepreneurship as well. Now, if you have any comments about the show you'd like to make or any things that you would like us to talk about, the phone number is 425-653-1166, 425-653-1166. Just leave a message, and we will get back to you. All right, so we'll come back with Eric's interview on Spotlight in just a moment. On today's Spotlight on Success, I'm speaking with Washington State Department of Revenue's Unclaimed Property Claims and Outreach Manager, Joe Giesler. Joe, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks for joining us via Zoom here. Uh, let's just get right into it. Talk to us about your department, what it does. Well, so uh, so I think this is kind of the best part of the Department of Revenue. Uh, we're working on uh, giving money away instead of looking for taxes to collect. We currently hold about $1.8 billion in unclaimed property that we're looking for the rightful owners to claim. Basically, people can just go to claimyourcash.org, do a search for unclaimed property, and if if they have some, they can use the same website to put in a claim for property. Kind of similar to like an online shopping cart. Um, You can search. If you have more than one property, you can add it to your cart. Um, You fill out the information online. And then, you know, we'll email you a, a claim form and possible, you know, ask for like a copy of your photo ID. That's kind of like the typical claim. Gotcha. You know, when uh, I, I knew I was going to do this interview, I did a little research myself and I did go on the website. It is probably one of the easiest, most handy websites I've ever been on to for a government agency. Uh, so congrats on that. And I, I, I like how you say you can just hopefully sweep it over. See if you have it. I, I put out the email to the staff here. We have about 80 employees and four or five actually got back to me and said, hey, I found some money. You know, so, like you say, it's a, it's a pleasant surprise. Yeah, it's it's really great. I mean, you know, and I've heard different stats, but I feel like it, it's somewhere around one in 10 people actually have unclaimed property. Um, you know, unclaimed property can be any kind, any money that a business might owe you, like a bank account or an uncashed check, uh, credit balances, stock, um, even safe deposit box uh, contents. You know, we, we've got unclaimed property um, for just about anything a business could owe to you. Now, is it a situation where if you don't claim it within a certain amount of time, it goes to the state and somehow is auctioned off or pulled into, say, a state fund? So for any cash, uh, we will hold on to the, the money forever until the rightful mm-hmm. person comes to claim it. Um, as far as safe deposit box contents, um, we do not have like a, a huge area to hold that stuff. So after a couple years, we do typically auction it off, but the proceeds from that auction will be available to claim. So it's not like it, it goes away completely. Um, we, we do hold that money. That's amazing. Okay, great. Can I get that website again real quick? It is claimyourcash.org. Now, what happens if you live out of state, but you spent some time here? You know, maybe you grew up here until 20, 30 years old and then moved away. Can you go onto the state's website and still claim that unclaimed item? Yeah, the, the money is here um, forever until the person claims it. So if they go to claimyourcash.org, they should be able to search their name, whether they're in the state of Washington now or they're no longer in the state of Washington. And then most states or all states actually have unclaimed property programs similar to ours. Um, there's actually another website out there. It's called missingmoney.com, where you can actually go in and search for um, properties for pretty much all the states. Oh, that's great. That's really convenient. Missingmoney.com or, of course, claimyourcash.org. Joe, um, how long have you worked with the department? Uh, so I've been with the Department of Revenue for almost 20 years. But as far as unclaimed property, I have been probably in unclaimed property for about four years. There's a little break in between. How long has this sort of a program been available here in this state? That's actually a really good question. Um, I know I'm pretty sure the law has been in effect for 50 years or so, but okay. it, I don't think the program really got up and running until around the, the 1980s. Yeah, and I'm sure computers and websites make it a lot easier. Yes, exactly. Uh, Care to talk about any of the stranger things that were left in, say, uh, boxes? Uh, You know, it's not something that I typically come up with on, come up, Two on my side, just because I'm on, on the claim side, um, we have a holder holder group that goes through all of the contents and inventories them. But 
just think of absolutely anything that could be in a safe deposit box. Um, you know, sometimes there's some, you know, gross things that are in there that we didn't want to see, you know, sometimes mm. there's some really old dirty stuff. I mean, we get everything, I believe, you know, five or six years ago, we had a grand slam baseball from Ken Griffey jr. It might've been his first one. Oh, wow. Um, and then there was even an article about it. Um, you know, basically anything that someone put in a safe deposit box, it comes to us. Uh, you got Benny's attention on that one. <laughs> Where do I find that ball? <laughs> uh, that I believe was auctioned off already. Ah. I know if I was able to claim a box, it'd be things like old quarters, maybe some pennies. <laughs> Lucky. <laughs> I'll take yeah. it. I'll take yeah. it. We just never know. So claimyourcash.org and uh, yes. learn more there. And it's really easy just to type in. You can do it by your name. There's other information that you can put in. It could be also a business, correct? Yes. It okay. could be a business. Um, you know, it could be someone that's deceased. Um, you know, really, you know, anytime the money comes to us, it can be for any property. Well, Joe, great information, and thanks so much for your work over there. Appreciate it, and I'm sure those who find out that they do have some unclaimed cash or property, they're going to appreciate it too, so thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, Joe, have a great day. That was Joe Giesler. He is the Unclaimed Property Claims Outreach Manager uh, there at the Washington State Department of Revenue. So thank you so much, Joe, and check it out, claimyourcash.org. Very informative. I've heard of that program before. Uh, didn't know all the details, but uh, you said you visited the site and you said in the interview, it's quite easy to. Super easy. It it's is. kind of fun, actually. It's like a, a scratch off at the lotto tickets, you know, <laughs> you sure. just never know. And he did mention to check out other states. So if you've lived in other states or you've oh, done okay. some commerce in other right. states, check those out. Um, you might even have relatives that in the past, let's say you're part of an inheritance and they lived in another state that could be listed there. And that has happened to me. It was very small, but it was uh, something I would have never heard about. Now there's actually companies that seek you out from their other states to help you claim that money and they get a cut of it, but they're the ones that bring it to you. Sure. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I, w- I believe now that you mentioned that a company did approach me to do that. Mm. at one point, and I just didn't follow up with it. But I kind of thought, oh, is this a scam or something? Yeah, and you're right. Be careful. You never know. I mean, this isn't something where someone contacts you. Oh, yeah, here's my Social Security number. Tell me what, you know, don't go down that road. Right. Super careful these days. Yeah. So anyhow, one more time, that's claimyourcash.org. .org. Easy to remember. All right, we'll be back in just a moment. Uh, Let's see, what are we going to do next? We're going to be uh, doing Voices of History. You just received some startling news. You're going to need brain surgery. But the doctor also says your prospects for total recovery are excellent. The doctor is very confident with his prognosis. He's performed hundreds of similar surgeries during his career. Who would you choose, this doctor or another doctor who's never performed this type of surgery? If the doctor who's performed similar surgeries is your choice, then experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. All right, welcome back to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and we have uh, a lot to get to today, and we're running right on time. Thank you, Eric Ryder. You're just doing a fabulous job, as always. All right, so let's get started. I gave this in the introduction about Voices of History. Tell me what you think it is. You recall what I introduced? You're hanging on every word. I, I, you know, I was thinking maybe it's where they uh, researched um, the breaking the sound barrier. Mm. Yeah, see, I knew. <laughs> Eric? I'm going to say Indianapolis 500 racetrack. All right, do we have a little? <laughs> yeah, Let's just it. give Yay. them a point. I think I've heard that somewhere. All right. Okay. Yeah. So um, anyhow, automobile dealer Carl Fisher first proposed building a private auto testing facility in 1906. 
to address the car manufacturer's inability to test potential top speeds of new cars. Makes hmm. sense. You're building these cars. You don't have a place to right. see how fast they go. So that's uh, the beginnings of the uh, Indy 500. The result was the Indianapolis Motor Speedway built on 232 acres of farmland five miles northwest of downtown Indianapolis. I've never been there, so I'll have to take their word for it. On May 30th, 1911, 40 cars lined up at the starting line for the first Indy 500. Ray Haroon won $14,250, and he clocked an average speed of 74.59 miles Mm. per hour. Two things come to mind there. One, I looked at $14,000. Ha ha. I'm going, wait a minute. That's a lot of money <laughs> That's back then. a lot then. of money. In uh, 1911. What would it be now? Like a half a million? I don't no know. No idea. Yeah, see, I don't understand those tables, but you hear that. Yeah. It's a substantial amount of money for that time. And what was You said there was two things. What was the other thing? Uh, Just the speed? You thought the yeah, speed? Yeah, the speed as well. Seemed high. Uh, yeah, 74, and that's average. So that means they're, you know, cars going quicker, or you know, his car at, at the time. They had a situation this year where, in a wreck, one of the tires flew off over the crowd and out into the parking lot, hit a car. you got to be kidding. No, and uh, uh, that, that has not happened in many, many years. My father was actually at one of the races where the cars flipped into the crowd in, I think it was the early 60s, and a few people passed away, maybe more than really? a few. Really? It was killed? a tragedy. Oh, absolutely. Well, very can, dangerous. Very dangerous driving there. I could say unequivocally... I am not into car racing. I don't think I've ever watched one minute of the Indianapolis 500. <laughs> I don't know thing. who won. It is not. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's all right. And now, let me ask you a question: Was your father, or were you that much into it, or are you just casually? Into oh, it? Or was your father into it? Uh, my father-in-law was way into it. So okay. his his wife at the time worked for Borg Warner, and I believe the trophy is still called the Borg Warner Trophy. And they, they deal in auto parts, I believe, like transmissions and things. But you have someone. Whatever flies off the car. Whatever. Collect yeah. <laughs> yeah. You go into. A yeah. So I, I was into that. it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why I submit is that a lot of these things that you get into is because of a parent or someone yeah. you know very well who's older who's into it. Like my dad was into baseball. Well, I get into baseball. My dad wasn't into hunting. So yeah. I'm not into hunting. But the sports that we watched together. So. If I had grown up, my dad was watching Indy 500, you know, and every Memorial Day, I'd probably be into it. Yeah. That's kind of the way it is. Well, he basically just ruled the television. <laughs> so whatever he was watching, <laughs> I was watching. There you, you know? go. And they had three stations, <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. Whatever. Uh, maybe that's more back in my time. Uh, let's see. On May 31st, 1859, 1859, Big Ben Clock Tower rang out for the first time above the British House of Commons. So that was today, 1859. This is an interesting one. Kind of grew up on this uh, time frame. On May 31st, 2005, Mark Felt, at age 91, revealed to Vanity Fair that he was deep throat. And when I mention deep throat, you know you're talking about President Nixon Uh-oh, and yeah. Watergate. And um, he was the former FBI assistant director, and seriously, that really unraveled President Nixon's administration and led to his resignation, as I said. Now, reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, who wrote All the President's Men, Deep Throat was giving them, he was giving them the information. And they promised to keep the source secret, that it was him until his death. Well, he came out before he died at, again, Hmm. age 91 and said, yeah, I was the guy. What I didn't know... I pretty much knew all that, but what I didn't know is that President Nixon himself speculated that Mark Felt was a secret informant as early as 1973. I don't know why he didn't do anything about it, but he kind of had a feeling this could have been the guy, Deep Throat, that was feeding all this information to Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. Intrigue. Interesting. June 1st, 1980, CNN, known as the Cable News Network, the world's first 24 hours television station network made its debut. June 1st, 1980, the network signed on from its headquarters in Atlanta with its lead story about the attempted assassination of civil rights leader Vernon Jordan. Oh, okay. You know, I do a radio talk down at GRC from time to time, and that's one of the things I bring up. GRC, what's that? Green River College. Got it. 
and uh, down there in the Auburn area, one of the things we touch on is just how much media has changed. And prior to that, remember, yeah, in Vietnam we did see visuals, but they weren't real-time visuals necessarily of what was happening in a war. But remember when CNN covered the first Gulf War? Absolutely. And it, it just shook the media in terms of how we, we ingested it. And suddenly we're seeing things real-time happening clear across the globe, which if you're born now when you can just pick up your phone and look, it, it's hard to fathom. But back then that was a big deal. Oh, sure it was. I remember being really stunned when that that war was on, Iraqi war, and they were doing it, and I could see, you know, they were in the field, and you could see the tanks moving and everything. I'm going, oh, my gosh. It's the world real. will never be the same. Yeah, it's really I remember exactly. just being really gripped by that. For so, better or worse, right? I don't, yeah, you better know. or worse. I mean, I, I do remember, too, when CNN started, who's going to watch 24-hour news cable? This isn't going to work. <laughs> yep. Another one of my grand predictions. <laughs> Washington State. Here are some things. I don't have too much exciting happen in the state uh, when I went to the uh, historylink.org this time. But on May 29, 1907, Seattle annexed Ballard in a year that saw the city greatly extend its boundaries. Seattle was in a big uh, area of expansion that year, and Ballard was one of the neighborhoods that came into Seattle. And on May 25, 1940, 33 years later, the Ballard Bridge was opened to provide a connection between downtown Seattle across the Lake Washington Ship Canal. Let's see, what else? Uh, Seattle's first aviation disaster occurred on May 29, 1912, at the Meadows Racetrack when an airplane crashed into the grandstand, killing one and injuring 21 others. Now, first of all, I don't know where the Meadows Racetrack was. Maybe we'll look that up and we can let people know. I want to know. Yeah, sure. I was going to do that before the show, but I didn't get to it. But uh, yeah, never heard of that. And then three years later, on May 30th, 1915, a barge filled with 620 tons of gunpowder exploded in Elliott Bay for reasons that no one has ever known what happened. The concussion shattered or cracked nearly 500 windows throughout the city. It must have been something to see. Yeah, I mean, crazy stuff. So this information is courtesy of the History Channel, uh, Today in History. Look it up. It's fascinating. If you like anything I'm talking about here, they've got 10,000 more current events and past events. Then, of course, uh, HistoryLink.org. That's a nonprofit organization started by Walt Crowley before he passed away. Another great site about history in this area. HistoryLink.org. All right, so now we are going to the part of the show when I said earlier we're going to be talking to an estate planning attorney by the name of Frank Sidarius. I just asked him about what the do's and don'ts are if you're making an estate plan or a will. Uh, under what circumstances do you need an estate plan? Maybe you don't need one. But um, I started out uh, asking him about the difference between an estate plan and just a will. Yeah, uh, good question. A, a will uh, is part of an estate plan. I look at it as an estate plan as uh, really a comprehensive plan you know, on what what you want to do with your assets uh, and and your affairs while you're alive and then plan for when you die. So a will is part of that overall estate plan, but I I think you've got to be, folks have to be looking at a comprehensive plan. How many people need a will and an estate plan, like 80%, 20%, 50%? Well, as far as the estate plan, I think everyone should have a plan and uh, uh, not necessarily including a will, so I'm not sure what percentage, but I'd say most folks, uh, most clients I see, uh, a will is part of that estate plan. But I guess my point is just that the, the the estate plan itself has to be something, you know, comprehensive. What would a good estate plan look like? Typically, I'd say the, the standard estate plan is a, is a we do a power of attorney, 
And that, of course, is in effect when you're alive only, and and that designates someone that can make financial decisions for you um, if you're in, incompetent or otherwise, and uh, health health decisions as well. And so, a power of attorney is is a very important part of any estate plan. And, and the will, I mean, that's that's again a standard a standard item in a, in a typical estate plan. In Washington, a community property state, we also have a provision for a community property agreement, and that's an agreement between husband and wife that upon the death of one of them, everything everything automatically transfers to the surviving spouse. Now, how often should you review your estate plan? Well, I, I tell folks anytime there's a major change in circumstances, you should review your estate plan. And I, I would say that with most of my clients, it's every couple of years I'll talk to them. I, I also tell folks to watch legislation, too, and, and uh, that, that's in the area of estate taxes at the federal level and at the state level. What are the biggest mistakes that people make when they put together an estate plan? Is there something that's pretty common that you see? If you don't maintain consistency and awareness of your total picture, and I can give you some examples of that, I've seen situations where folks will have a will, but they beneficiary designations on accounts that don't match what their intent is in their will. You know, for example, some years ago, I had uh, represented a, a spouse that was in the middle of a divorce. And the husband died and had a life insurance policy, but he hadn't changed his life insurance policy to exclude his soon-to-be-divorced spouse. So she ended up getting that life insurance. So, you know, I I remind folks to make sure that all of your beneficiary designations are consistent with what your your will plan is. In most cases, people will come in and they're not even aware of what what beneficiary designations they might have on accounts. It sounds to me that uh, you really have to be reviewing this frequently. I'd like to think that, you know, we've done our estate plan and, you know, will and all that. Like to think that, hey, it's done and wrapped up, but you're saying you just have to keep uh, on it and make sure that your wishes are still being honored. Is it expensive to do this? What's the process? How much should somebody be thinking this is the cost of doing this right? Well, that's a... I'll give you the answer, the, the lawyer answer. It depends, and that's the answer that every lawyer gives to every single question. Uh, it, it depends on, on what what it is, uh, how elaborate your estate plan needs to be. I've done some very simple wills, community property agreements that are just several hundred dollars. But my process here is that I issue a, uh, an email to a potential client with a questionnaire, and they fill in the information, send it back to me, and then I I can typically quote a, a flat fee for their estate plan based on what information they send me. But if you start getting into elaborate trust provisions and all that, that can run into several thousand dollars. For a very simple will, it should be just several hundred dollars. Okay, got it. What do you see when people don't have an estate plan? And how often do you see that when somebody doesn't have a will or estate plan? And what happens to their property and anything they have in their accounts? The biggest fear is what I think folks here on national talk shows and all that is if you don't have a will or an estate plan, everything's going to go to the state. Over 40 years of doing this, I haven't seen very many, if any, a state. Everything goes into the state of Washington. There are statutes in Washington and other states that if you don't have a will, uh, you die, they call it intestacy, those statutes will provide where your estate will go. And there's a huge list that covers all of your relatives, starting with your nearest relatives, on down quite remotely to distant cousins and all that. So it's highly unlikely that if you die without a a will or an estate plan that your assets are going to go to the, the state, the state of Washington. That's not a reason to not do a will because you want to make sure everything goes where you want it to go. Interesting. I just learned a lot right there. I didn't know that. I, <laughs> I had the same fear. I said, if you don't do this, Jay Inslee's going to get it. But you're saying otherwise. That's that's good to hear. So that's uh, Frank Sidarius, and he's a partner with the law firm Sidarius, Lonigan and Martin. His office is located in downtown Seattle. If you would like to get any information from here, and maybe that questionnaire he was talking about, you can uh, call and ask for that. His phone number is 624-2800. That's 206-624-2800. And um, you can, again, get that checklist or ask any questions you have about the estate. And the good news he talked about is it doesn't have to really bankrupt you to do all this stuff. It can be very inexpensive. But I think the more organized you are, 
the less expensive it will be. One more time, Frank Sidarius at 206-624-2800. What was air travel like during the so-called golden age? I'll tell you in a moment. In 1955, passenger airplanes were powered by propellers. Jets were still a few years away. Travel by air was accessible, but only to the privileged few. There was plenty of legroom, and not just in first class. The bubbly flowed, cigarettes lit up, all followed by an elegant meal served by female stewardesses. Men need not apply. Fast forward to today. Yes, passengers can be packed in like sardines, but it's faster, more affordable, and much safer than even walking. I'm Paul Casey with this edition of Time Traveler from VoicesOfExperience.com. So, Eric, we were having a conversation. You have a show or something you were talking about yeah. on air travel. Yeah, and I, I might screw this up. It's I believe it's on Netflix. It's called Air Disasters, and it's it's a real look at airplane crashes, basically, but from the time of the crash to figuring out how it happened. And so there's a lot of CSI going on here. You know, they're, they're, they can take all these little bits in a field, these burned little pieces, and figure out how did that plane crash and then give a report. I just find it interesting because of the teams that are involved to do that. Um, and, you know, in your bit here, or your, your segment here talking about this, it strikes me how you're talking about going kind of from the propeller to the jet age because with technology comes some danger. But I feel like air travel now is pretty dang safe. It's the safest mode of transportation. I don't think there's any question. I think um, maybe 50 people die a day falling down the stairs. Hmm. Um, you know, about 100 die a day in car accidents. But just to your point, when something happens with an, involving an aircraft, I mean, we're still reading about it 10 years later. Yeah. And they put so many protocols in place that I feel when I get on a plane, I'm in the safest spot. I've been in two car accidents getting to the airport. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Um, just one was a fender bender, but one was pretty serious in a cab, and it could have been worse. Marty, my wife, actually had some injuries in it. So I just say that because I think one of the things that, again, why people have so much focus on air travel is because, yes, when it happens, it's huge. The impact is huge. However, again, 40,000 people die a year mm-hmm. in car accidents. Right. And uh, don't seem that we pay as much attention to. And that's always been kind of an issue with me. Yeah, I know auto safety to you is huge, and it should be for everybody, uh, as we see out on the highways and byways every day here. Um, maybe it's a control thing, Paul. Maybe it's like people think they get behind the car and they're somehow safer because they're in control as opposed to an airplane where you're sitting in your seat and you're thinking, I'm out of control of this situation. But you don't realize you've got decades and decades of technology and highly skilled pilots who are flying this thing. Very true. I'm going to do a bigger segment on car safety in in probably the next four weeks or so. Hey, I want to uh, just read this quote. You know, we're in very divided times and people are polarized and Either this side or that side of the wall, basically. I can't disagree more, but go ahead. Okay. So here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Took me a second to get that one, Eric. I'm slowing down. All right. Our country is bankrupt fiscally, morally, and mentally. Courts have been prostituted, and law enforcement is not even attempted Congress to be heterogeneous, um, diversified of their interests. And when it adjourns, there is a general sigh of relief from the populace. We already have chaos. Will, will the people's disgust manifest itself into revolt? Will it be a revolution, or is there enough decency left in this country to preserve our way of life, or is it worth preserving? Wow. Okay, I got you both powerful staring at me. Yeah, it's yeah, a okay. powerful statement. The reason I read that, that was printed in the Seattle Times on July 4th, 1967. Wow. Actually... It was not printed then per se. It was um, in the Seattle Times on my take section by John Umicki, and that was his grandfather, Harry F. Ulray, talking about what was going on in 1967. I just thought maybe that would help put things a little bit more in perspective. This is kind of the way it's been. I, my goal was is that you probably thought someone was saying yeah, that today. Today. 
So I don't know if I feel good about that or bad because, <laughs> you know, it so, feels like it should have gotten better, huh? Well, yes. I mean, you would think so, but then again, it puts it in perspective. perspective. This country's always been that way. Now, I have difficulty myself reading it because I think we have issues now that go deeper than that because of people looking at very different news cycles and news information, where they get that from. It's not my idea today to delve into that. Sure. But I just thought I'd kind of throw that out there because this country has really had issues for a very long period of time. So um, anyhow, uh, let's see what else moving on. Tom Hanks, I mentioned at the beginning, is one of my favorite actors, individuals of all times. And he spoke to Harvard University, their graduating class, I guess a week ago or something. And I just want to play part of what he talked about. And it goes to what we just talked about now and part of the problems we're having. And he addressed truth. So let's see what Tom had to say. For the truth to some is no longer empirical. It's no longer based on data, nor common sense, nor even common decency. Telling the truth is no longer the benchmark for public service. It's no longer the salve to our fears or the guide to our actions. Truth is now considered malleable by opinion and by zero-sum endgames. Imagery is manufactured with audacity, with purpose to achieve the primal task of marring the truth with mock logic, to achieve with fake expertise, with false sincerity, with phrases like, I'm just saying... Oh, I'm just asking. You know, I'm just wondering. Now, literally, you cannot believe your eyes and your ears will help others lie to you. Someone will report the world to you exactly as you wish it were, full of alternative facts, of conjured narrative meant to buttress the status quo and deny its offenses or rejig the rules and muddy the playing field, depending on where one is on the food chain and the moral spectrum. Truth has opposites. Omission. You don't need to know that. Distraction. That's not the real story. This is. Opinion masquerading as clairvoyance. Oh, here is what is going to happen. And influence peddling. You know, a lot of people are saying. Truth, too, has a nemesis. Equal to any colored kryptonite. That like a feral hound is never too far off the path in the weeds and in the shadows lying in wait for the lethal opportunity to bring truth down and that beast is indifference which will make moot all the permanence found in truth indifference will rust away the promise of our promised land propaganda and bald-faced lies will erode over time, idolatry and imagery lose luster and effect. Ignorance and intolerance can be replaced by experience in the wink of an eye, but indifference will narrow the vision of America's people and make dim the light of Lady Liberty's symbolic torch. Indifference makes citizens into indentured servants held in labor by the despots and tyrants whose default setting is cynicism, who outlaw dissent and ban art and dialogue and books. You know something? I can't really comment anymore. That was so eloquent. What can you say beyond that point? But I think why it really hit me about that in about a 20-minute speech that he gave, and I advise anybody just to Google Tom Hanks at Harvard to hear his whole speech, but indifference, that the people... The polarization, we go the right, the left, the in, whatever. But it's the indifference to people who really make the difference that do not say anything and stand on the sidelines. That's all I had to add on that. Yeah, great speech. Uh, I'm going to definitely Google that and watch the entire uh, speech. Uh, you know, a lot of times those those speeches given seem really canned or not very heartfelt. You could tell he put a lot of time and effort into that, yeah. writing that. I think he's a great actor I've mentioned before and just a great man as well. Mm-hmm. He's just a really good person. So we got to still move on. We got so much left to go. We have Carlton Ward coming up in just a moment.
I had an interview with uh, a photographer and author, Carlton Ward, a couple weeks ago. He helped put the wildlife corridor of Florida on the map. And we'll let you know what that means during the interview, so I don't have to tell you about that now. But here's a guy who trekked over 1,000 miles from the Everglades to Georgia in 2012 and another 1,000 miles from the Everglades to the headwaters around the Gulf of Mexico to Alabama in 2015 to really seek really diminishing wildlife of the Everglades and what we can do about it. He also wrote a book called Path to the Panther, a story based on new hope and recovery of the endangered species in Everglades home. So let's get into my interview with Carlton Ward. There's a call to action that you are proposing to protect the Florida Wildlife Corridor. What is the Wildlife Corridor in Florida? Great question. The state of Florida has 10 million acres of existing public land, state parks, national parks like Everglades National Park, state and national forests, national wildlife refuges. But these lands aren't all connected to one another. And what's happening with a thousand people a day moving to Florida and lots of suburban sprawl and development, we're at risk of all these amazing public lands becoming islands surrounded by development. And that's not a good outcome for wildlife or for people. The Florida Wildlife Corridor proposes connecting up the green space in Florida so that we have a contiguous network of public conservation lands and private working lands that function together for wide-ranging wildlife and for ecosystem processes. It's based on existing science that goes back for decades, something called the Florida Ecological Greenways Network. And when I came on the scene as a conservation photographer in Florida in 2005 and 2006, I learned about that science and also recognized that it was pretty much missing from the public conversation or from the decision-making process that was deciding the fates of these lands. So I proposed the Florida Wildlife Corridor as a basically marketing and branding campaign to help save wild Florida, and they've been working on that ever since. Are the decision makers listening? We're having great synergy with the leaders of Florida at this moment. In 2021, and they introduced the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act, which defined the opportunity. And the Florida Wildlife Corridor, as described in that legislation, is that 10 million acres of public land and an additional 8 million acres of opportunity area. So together, an 18 million acre network of land that makes up about half the state of Florida. And by putting that framework and that story to Florida land conservation, it has motivated and inspired a lot of additional investment in land protection during the past three years. And if the current budget gets signed by the governor, there'll be a billion dollars for the Florida Wildlife Corridor. We'll be making quite a big difference for purchasing and paying for conservation easements on some of these missing links that help hold this corridor together. So you sound optimistic that this will happen. I I am optimistic, and I I have to be. I'm a multi-generation Floridian with three young kids, and I want them and every one of their generation to inherit a Florida that is connected and whole as much as it can be. There is unanimous bipartisan support for the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act in 2021. You highlight the panther as a animal species to protect. Why the panther and not the alligators or storks or turtles or those pythons? <laughs> why did you choose the panther? Well, the, the panther is to me, the ultimate symbol of why we need to save the Florida Wildlife Corridor. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, the panther is pretty much isolated to the southern tip of Florida. We're opposite corner of the continent from you, but you know the mountain lions that you have in Seattle, it's pretty much the same animal. And the Florida panther is the last remaining population of pumas east of the Mississippi River. And they were wiped out of existence everywhere else in the east through hunting and persecution back in the past century or so. But about 20 panthers survived deep in the Everglades where they avoided conflict with people because the land was so inhospitable and remote and wet that early settlers didn't necessarily want to be there. And so the panthers survived alongside the Seminole and Miccosukee people And in the 1960s and 1970s, when a conservation ethic was being born in America, the Florida panther is one of the first subspecies, one of the first animals put on the Endangered Species Act. And since then, conservation efforts have helped bring them back from fewer than 20 to nearly 200 today, triple or quadruple in number, which is only going to happen if they have access to three times as much territory as they do now. 
So that's where the Florida Wildlife Corridor comes in. That's remarkable. It was the Panthers were down to 20, and now they're back up to 200. I was hoping you were going to say like 2,000. So still, it's uh, on the edge of extinction. That's a problem when all of the Panthers are in one area. One of the main characters of the book is this female panther, one of the scientists called Babs, who showed up at Babcock Ranch. And she is the first female north of the Clusahatchee River or north of Fort Myers, Florida, in my lifetime. And it represents the hope of the recovery of the species. Why doesn't the Endangered Species Act of 1973 that was designed to do just what you're talking about Why isn't that protecting the panther and other species in Florida and elsewhere? It has protected the panthers quite a bit. It's what provided incentive for habitat protection and disincentive for hunting that helped them get their current stage of recovery. An animal like the American alligator was almost extinct at the same time, and they're everywhere in their suitable habitat now. You're working on also the last Wild Places campaign that will feature a documentary film. When can we expect that to be released? There have been two films released. One was made with National Geographic Society called Saving the Florida Wildlife Corridor, and that can be seen online through that website, savingthefloridawildlifecorridor.com. The newest film that just came out, Path of the Panther, is streaming on Disney Plus and on Hulu through National Geographic. It's a 90-minute feature-length documentary co-produced by my production company, Wild Path, and Eric Bendick and Grizzly Creek Films. Leonardo DiCaprio has joined as an executive producer and lent his name and voice to the project. So it's, it's an amazing opportunity to tell this story to a global audience. This is fascinating. You've answered a lot of my questions, and I'm feeling optimistic about what you're trying to accomplish going forward, and I'm glad you're doing this. I just ask people to engage with the story. Come to pathwiththepanther.com, where you have links to the film and to the book. And learn about wildlife corridors wherever you live in this country, whether it's Seattle, California, the Carolinas, Florida. The same idea of connecting green space is so vital, not just for wildlife, but for protecting these ecosystems for the future of people. That was Carlton Ward, and uh, I really enjoyed that interview with him. Now, if you would like to get a copy of his book, uh, Path of the Panther, or look at a number of his photographs and videos. I went on, Googled him today, and he's just got a whole bunch of information there and say some great videos. Uh, all you need to do is Google Carlton Ward, and um, that's C-A-R-L-T-O-N Ward, W-A-R-D. And so I uh, hope you enjoyed that as much as I do. And one real quick comment. I recall when the 1973 Endangered Species Act passed, I also remember people going, another government boondoggle and what wouldn't right. do anything and, and so on. And I just passed that on because <laughs> it's done quite a bit for this country. Sure. Well, we're out of time today for Voices of Experience. I want to thank Eric Crema and, of course, Eric Ryder for moving this show along. It was, uh, again, so fast, but such a delight to bring to you. Any comments about what you heard today, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166, 425-653-1166, and tell us what you'd like to hear. Next week, I'm going to be interviewing Aberna Anat on finances and money, Out Loud, that's the name of her book, uh, this particular book, and what she's going to talk about. She's a young adult herself. She dug herself out of financial crisis, and she's going to tell you how she did it and uh, how you can follow her path as well. Now, VOE, Voices of Experience, airs on Kixie Wednesdays at 3 p.m., which you probably know, and it is simulcast with Hubbard's sister station, KKNW, 1150 a.m. And uh, VOE. Voices of Experience, I keep doing that. Voices of Experience is rebroadcast on Kixie only on Sundays at 11.30 a.m. Quote of the week. Before you criticize someone, you should walk a mile in their shoes. That way, when you criticize them, you are a mile away from them and you have their shoes. (laughs) Jack Handy. This week's Timeless Classic is coming up next.
This week's timeless classic was written by Irish musicians Bono and The Edge. It was described at the time as a gloriously over-the-top James Bond theme. Music Week magazine rated the song 5 out of 5. The song soared to number 2 in the U.S. The song served as the theme of the movie Golden Eye. It was released on November 6, 1995. Tina Turner and Golden Eye. As a child 